Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil, and this is... Emily Kate Stevens. Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID. And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions. So, Emily, how was your week? My week was, uh, let's say, fine. My week was fine. Okay. How was your week? <laughs> you probably can hear from my voice I'm sick. And um, this is how I imagine COVID should be. Although I had COVID, but it was never like as bad as this. And I've properly got some virus, but it's not apparently COVID because I've been testing. Is it exacerbating long COVID symptoms? It's exacerbating my long COVID symptoms. So your heart's bad. My heart rate's all over the place. Yeah. And plus I'm coughing and sneezing and feverish and not feeling great. On top of my usual symptoms. I'm sorry. Um, so this week's guest... It's a variation on a theme, I'd say. We have the author Michael Rosen with us, who had COVID, who's got long COVID, but comes at it from a very interesting perspective. Yeah, and it was just it was a really nice chat about uh, the sort of wider picture of it in some ways, wasn't it? And how we process things and how the country is dealing with things. He gives a very sage, not to make fun of sage, but like he gives a very sage... <laughs> Um, kind of understanding of what we've been through, what we're going through, and how, in his view, silly the government has been about dealing with COVID and now long COVID. Take us right back to the beginning of your COVID experience. I know it has not been fun. So it was in March 2020, and I got what I thought was flu. It felt like flu to me. Uh, you know, when you get to my age, you, you've had these illnesses and you sort of give them labels. So I had that sort of prickly, achy feeling. I had a high temperature, a bit of a cold, but not very much. I wasn't coughing. I couldn't get tested. I couldn't go to the GP. couldn't go to A&E. And I was slowly getting worse. I found it harder and harder to breathe. So in the end, the only thing you could do was ring 111. So that's what I did. And I remember... Um, talking to a paramedic and in the morning I, I think I remember um and he he got me to breathe <laughs> on the phone and uh and then I think I was getting worse and Emma my wife um she was getting quite worried and um we have a friend who's a neighbor and a GP and she came over I think she came over in the morning and then she came back in the evening and when she came back in the evening, she came with a, an oximeter, which I'd never heard of before, and got Emma to put it on my finger. And I only now know, in retrospect, I think the reading was 58. <gasps> and it's supposed to be in the mid-90s. And in her words, I shouldn't really have been conscious. She'd never seen anyone with one that low. And very calmly said that Emma had to take me to the hospital straight away. And I said, well, I can't really get out of bed. I can't really walk very well, I said, so I can remember saying that. And so basically between them, they bundled me into the car and with our daughter, Elsie, in the back, we went to the Whittington A&E and uh, this doctor, lovely Dr. Katie, Katie Emil, she had um, rung ahead for us and they whacked a, a mask on my face. Uh, I was in intensive care, I think, overnight. And then they said I was fine. So they sent me off to a, an ordinary ward 
and then I dipped again. At the end of that week, they decided my condition was so bad that they induced a coma. That's right. So I went into an induced coma for 40 days. And during that time, they were trying to obviously encourage me to get rid of the blood clots in my lungs um, and also the pneumonia in my lungs. Uh, but also then I got a secondary infection, bacterial pneumonia. So I got that as well. But they started waking me up or trying to wake me up after 40 days and they couldn't really. Um, and I was getting delirious and apparently they were getting quite worried because my eye had blown um, so they could see that, that the eye was dilated and they were worried that I'd got some sort of stroke or blood clot in my brain. In the words of Professor Hugh Montgomery, we didn't know whether Michael would be brain dead or not. I've often thought about that. And um, But then they got Emma to come in, though, though it was sort of breaking the, the protocols of the time. And she met up with me on the fourth floor atrium of the Whittington overlooking London. It's rather beautiful, actually. Not that I knew anything about it. And she held my hand and played me uh, recordings of the rest of the family talking to me. And according to Hugh, this was the game changer. This was the moment that I, instead of just talking in a kind of rather abstract, odd sort of way, um, I suddenly was talking and making sense. I don't remember any of this at all. So I can just about remember being admitted to the hospital and I can remember a strange conversation that went something like this when a doctor was standing by my bed asking me if I would sign a piece of paper which would allow them to put me to sleep and pump air into my lungs. Will I wake up, I said. There's a 50-50 chance, he said. If I say no, I say zero. And I signed. So I can remember that moment and then I can start to remember some stuff. I think it's about 50 days later when I'm in a ward I think so anyway, and, and I think I've got mittens on my hands and I'm saying, I, I don't like the mittens, I don't like the mittens. And a nurse, and I think she was Chinese, was saying, save your energy. And it sounded like a sort of Tai Chi command. <laughs> you know, I'd done, I'd done tai, tai Chi once. And she, every time I said anything, I can just see her saying, save your energy. And I was sort of rather lulled by it. And then because of the drugs they give you, you get quite paranoid. And I started to think I was in a Maoist correction camp. <laughs> um, so that was one of many strange sort of dreams and deliriums I had. And then uh, I discovered that I couldn't stand up, I couldn't walk, uh, I couldn't hold anything. Um, so uh, I did a little bit of rehab in the Whittington before I then went off for three weeks to a rehab hospital in St Pancras. Now, the physical problems that you experienced at that point, are they a normal response to the body having been in a, an induced coma for 40 days and having not moved? Or are, are those what we are now considering long COVID? Yeah, it's very hard to distinguish exactly what is the consequence of being in ICU that long and what's the COVID. So it's a bit hard to distinguish. So obviously mm. the blood clots, which I had to get rid of, um, uh, the word that was used by the doctor was, oh, you'll digest them, I hope, um, which was conjured up images of me eating <laughs> blood clots. Um, it's a bit unmedical of me, wasn't it? That's obviously, that was a consequence of COVID because we have to remind ourselves that COVID isn't really a respiratory disease. COVID is really a vascular disease. 
that attacks the cells in the lining of the capillaries in particular. So that's why you get the clots and that's why you get the, the nerves dying. So the fact I've had numb toes, that's a consequence of COVID. But the weakness, well, if you're in uh, ICU for that long, you're what they call deconditioned. Mm. So clearly that's the case. But then if you're breathless, well, that sounds like COVID, doesn't it? Because that's, well, you know, probably better than me. So I can't distinguish, you know, if I exert myself, I get breathless. But is that because I'm still conditioning myself or is it because of the COVID or indeed because I'm, I have an underactive thyroid that though I take the pills for it, it may be that it's not quite enough, but that's just another matter. It's just another sidetrack. So um, it's a bit hard to distinguish, but then there are two key things that are post-COVID. That's my eye, which is blown, and I can hardly see through my left eye. I can just about make you out, actually. I'm quite a good day today. Um, and then I can't really hear with my left ear. And I also get a bit dizzy. So whether that's because I'm lopsided, as you can imagine, mm -hmm. if you haven't got your yeah. left eye and the left ear, then you're a bit wonky. So there's the dizziness, occasional vertigo. I did get it twice, which was really quite scary. So that is all part of COVID. So I can directly say eye, ear, toes, dizziness, blood clots. Yeah. That's all a direct consequence. But then, of course, that has then knock-on effects. You've been quite vocal about long COVID and you're part of a few Facebook groups and stuff. And do you think that you're getting more support really from these other people who are suffering and going through the same things as you than the medical establishment? Because I, right at the beginning, we were being told it's in our heads. You're not, you're not really sick, you know, just go out for a run. I, I distinguish between medical help and mental help just for the moment. I know it's, we shouldn't do these things. You know, mind and body, it's all the same thing. But uh, just for the moment, I'll say to be able to just read what has happened to other people or see it occasionally on television or in webinars and seminars that I've been on, that is in its own way incredibly comforting. So I know from previous experience, like losing my son, that simply to hear other people and what they've been through has an incredible, for me, an incredible effect I sat on a seminar with a woman, a GP, who was suffering from long COVID. And just to hear her articulate all the ways in which she'd been affected. So, for example, she described brain fog. So she described how a report that normally take her, what did she say, about half a day was taking her three days just to write. Uh, this was in its own way liberating for me because I do get occasional sort of bothers and brain fog and I, I now know what to do about it but I do get it and it, it is slightly different from the kind of muddles I might have got in before I got ill so I can kind of locate it um, so something like that well really a doctor can't help you with that it, you have to do this through self-help and conversations between fellow sufferers so you have to do that on the other hand if you've got something like a wonky eye well you've got to go to an ophthalmologist who will tell you well, what I'm going to do is do a cataract op, or I'm going to do something else with you. Well, you know, you can talk about it online, but it it does actually need somebody who knows a lot about eyes to talk to you. So it's a balance. I wouldn't say one rather than the other. I fully understand that people who faced the physical tiredness and weakness, and I'm looking at you, you're two fit women. I can see that. <laughs> No, 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 I can see just from the, you know, you're not, you're not, 
incapacitated. And it must be horrifying for you a year later, or more than a year later, to experience these exhaustions. And you're young as well. And doctors, if they're gaslighting you and saying it's all in your mind, then that's horrific. And they shouldn't do that. Because they, by now, they ought to know that this is a vascular illness. And a vascular illness, if it kills off capillaries, it kills nerves. Once you're killing off nerves, you've got total body damage. And so doctors shouldn't be saying it's just all in your mind. I mean, I've I heard, for example, from top consultants that some people who have been particularly affected are people who did a lot of exercise, whether they were marathon runners, half marathon runners or whatever. And the reason for that they're hypothesizing is because of the micro injuries involved in heavy training, that you damage the collagen fibers in the muscles. And then, of course, you know, a day later, if you're very fit, then those collagen fibers compensate for that little micro energy of that marathon run or half marathon that you did and produce more collagen fibers. That's how you build up strength and stamina through muscles. Well, if that's happening to you with with the consequences of a vascular illness, well, then the repairs won't happen as well. And so these things have a physiological base. So doctors shouldn't be gaslighting people about this. They should be reading up exactly these cells that COVID has got into that invades inside the blood vessels, which are the ones that prevent you naturally clotting in your blood vessels. Otherwise, we just have clotted blood vessels. So we have these special little cells in our blood vessels that say, don't clot. On the other hand, when we cut ourselves, we get a message that says clot. So that's why we have scabs. So if you knock out these these cells on the lining of the capillaries, well, then we get clots. And so you get things like COVID toes, which I, I, I lost my both my toenails and just had sort of bloody f- toes. So that's a direct consequence of COVID. But it's also really interesting because I'd heard of COVID toes in terms of losing sensation and tingling, but I hadn't necessarily heard of nail loss. And I have lost a thumbnail yep. and that no one has suggested that this is in any way linked at any point. But given the timing of it, I suspected that it was somehow linked. And now you've just explained that it might be. Yeah. Well, if you look at the root of your nail, you'll see it's fed by tiny capillaries and the nail is obviously dead as a piece of tissue. The only thing that's alive is the root. So what happened was that the the root of your thumbnail got a micro clot. So it basically just gave up the ghost and just said, hard like, you're going to lose that nail. And then the nail just falls out. So what's your ongoing treatment? Are you part of a long COVID clinic? Have you managed to get into a long COVID clinic? No, I, I haven't gone because... Um, the main thing that I'm reading that people are affected by, uh, like the breathlessness and the weakness, by and large, insofar as I feel weak. So this week, uh, for example, I uh, had to go to Cheltenham and back and I had to do a bit of a stage show. I had to do lots of press things. And I was planning yesterday to go to a press launch of something that I was involved with. And uh, I went out shopping in the morning and then around about midday, I thought, hmm, I think I'll go and sit on the sofa now. And then I kind of sat on the sofa and just slowly keeled over. And I thought, oh, well, I know what this is. This is that um, I can't do these things on consecutive days. But as I'm 75, this isn't a a great bother, you know. So I just felt that sort of just woof. And I I kind of locate it as a sort of a feeling where I think, don't push it, just have a relax. And I just 
maybe do a bit of tweeting just to keep my mind going and not getting depressed. So I just sat there instead of going down to the Imperial War Museum, where I was, I was supposed to have been. The answer to your question is, so I don't go to one of these clinics. I go to deal with my toes, my eyes, and my ears. So very specifically, and that's very regular um, treatment that I have. I think one of the things from what you were just saying that a lot of people can potentially learn from is you seem to have an acceptance of your condition and your limitations and I think that we're in our 40s and we have young kids and we we, one of the things we really struggle with is having that acceptance and giving yourself the permission to sit down on the sofa and keel over and so I think that's a lot of the time where people are looking for online support is that how you were or is that something that you have learned over the past 18 months to to be accepting yeah, difficult question. I think I'm somebody who tends to accept the cards you're dealt with. I do tend to accept that. I mean, if I get particular about it, I've been through some emotional turmoils, one sort or another, um, and losing my son, and and also this strange thyroid illness. So I sort of struggle in the early days and look round for other human beings who've been through it I think I've always tended to do that. I mean, the human condition, it's, it's, quite, it's quite strange, isn't there? There's this weird contradiction is that we are taught and we feel ourselves to be individuals. And so we feel all this stuff as if it's personal. Those people who are religious. They talk to the divine and imagine the divine is talking to them. And but they see themselves, or we see ourselves, we're totally conditioned. You know, all these little phrases like follow your dream and any of these things, or the way in which fiction and song is presented to us, it's, these are all about individuals. And yet, every aspect of ourselves, consciousness, our bodies and everything, is all social. We are an evolved species, so because I am here and you are there and you're the shape and faces that you are, well, you've inherited that from your forebears of hundreds of years. So even your body is shared with all them. We carry the genes of all these people. And then all this stuff we talk about personal experience is in actual fact social. It's all social. The language I'm using, you know, I didn't make it up. It's it's all shared. So it's kind of this weird contradiction between that you feel everything happening to you is personal, but in actual fact, everything is social. So here we are sharing this virus. This virus belongs to the to the gyre. It belongs to the, the sphere it's now part of the human race and whatever we want to describe, the collective of viruses. So we all share it and all these reactions we're having, they're all part of a social interaction with this virus. So on the one hand, you can take it and think, oh, God, the virus got me, me, Michael Rosen, it picked me out. God, the bastard, that little prickly hedgehog got inside me because... I went for a walk that day and met that person and then it picked me out. And I blame that person for talking to me and breathing on me. So you can get all kind of lunatically individualistic about it. And I find it, I don't say it's a relief necessarily, but philosophically, I think of it uh, socially. So, you know, to, to read about other people, talk to other people, follow what happened is for me, a form of acceptance. Yes, that's right. I'll use that word. I'm mean, going to have to use it quite carefully because in some ways I do kick against it, but there is a level of acceptance. Yeah. One part of recovery for me 
is is just to get down to sort of details, if you like, is to make sure that I buy food or cook food or Emma cooks food as well, obviously, uh, more more than me. Um, that is like got a particular satisfaction for you. I mean, it sounds trivial, but in actual fact, it's sort of part of the architecture of the day. That so, I'm very very fond of seeded bagels. Okay, inordinately fond of them. I mean, it's just lunatic, but it's, it, but it's just at the end of the road. There's, a, there's a, a, a Jewish deli. So I can go in there and buy poppy seed or sesame seed bagels and have them straight like that or toasted. And I just, and then have baba ganoush or hummus on it. And you think, or indeed chopped liver or chopped herring. It's all getting very Jewish now. Um, and um, <laughs> it just it gives me a satisfaction. And I know what it is. It's not, it's not as if it's irrational. You're, you're connecting with home previous home your parents and it places you in the world you know your feet are on the ground because this thing shatters everything it does you know. i've started to make myself indian chai in the morning yeah. just the way my mum and my grandma used to make and it's like a hug first thing in the morning it's that comfort isn't it finding yeah. some comfort because we've been discombobulated to use a technical word we've we've been taken off our feet and thrown about. Now, I guess people who've been in big accidents, people who've had strokes, people who've had, you know, long spells of pneumonia, they, they, we're not unique in that. But the, the weird thing about this, of course, is that it was such a frightening social phenomenon. So this is a trauma that affects us. You know, there's three of us here today. It's affected us as individuals. But this is societal and then, of course, worldwide. And then we're leaving out for the moment, not, not deliberately, but the bereaved that this has been a trauma. And I have to say this, to see the minister, Stephen Barclay, going from studio to studio, exculpating the government from blame was horrifying and hurtful. I listened to him peddling this hindsight line when we know that there were people in March 2020 saying, listen to what the WHO is saying. We must lock down. We must close the airports. We must stop large social gatherings. We must have test, trace and isolate. All this. And he's sitting there saying, with the benefit of hindsight. And there's now emerged a clip where he's actually sitting on BBC Question Time alongside Professor Ashton, who is saying to him, we have locked down five, six weeks too late. This is from March the 12th. You were told the rest of it. And you can see Barclay nodding in the background. And he went round studios yesterday saying, oh, well, it's all very well, benefit of hindsight. And you think, sorry, chum, you were actually in a TV studio listening to what Professor Ashton said to you. And, it, and you know, I find stuff like that. I mean, on the one hand, it's enraging. And on the other hand, explains how I got ill. So it's kind of both one at the same time. It's kind of enraging and in its own way, I mean, in its own way, satisfying that, that you think, well, I, I do. You were negligent. You, the government, not, not you two guys. Um, you, were, you were negligent and that you created a situation in which people got ill and you weren't bothered because at that time you were peddling with the idea of herd immunity. And we, this is emerging. We know this. But it's not just they were negligent. They still are. They still are being. They opened up all the schools. All the schools, no mask mandates. Yeah. And people are still getting sick. And you read stories of people who are infected for the second time and these kids who are infected for the second time. It's absolutely desperate. Yeah. Um, and it just doesn't seem to be being controlled by, by 
the government. There's no, it's not just about hindsight, about, it's about what we're doing right now as well. Yes, 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 yes. And um, I mean, I, I throw this back at you and I can tell just by the way you were speaking, there's a, we feel a communality about it, don't we? You see, when we see this stuff, it's because we've been there and we're living this stuff you have a communality with what when you when people throwing up on Twitter or Facebook of pictures of kids in dire straits with this stuff, and of course the, the fatality rate is pretty bloody appalling as well. I mean, you know, it's not leave out the fact that people are dying, and they put a demarcation line between the fit and strong and the old and the vulnerable. I had a conversation with a journalist who shall be nameless, let's say, um, on Twitter, in which uh, she had put up a post saying that ah, all these descriptions of long COVID, you see, they're lurid. I think that was the word she used. Yes, yes, you see, they're lurid. And I then tweeted at her and said, yes, I, I made it all up. Uh, I wasn't really ill. I was just hiding under the table. So she picked up on the irony, of course, and, and said, ah, yes, Michael, but she said, but you're 74. Now, just to unpack that. What is but about being 74? By the way, this journalist is uh, 66. She drew a demarcation line of the eight years difference in our ages in which somehow or other her day, this is how I see it existentially, her day is more valid than my day. So a 66-year-old's day is more valid than a 74-year-old's day. So she said, but you're 74. In other words, there was some part of her that felt that, well, it was kind of coming for, for Michael Rosen, COVID. It was out there. It spotted some old geezer, 74, past his best, so what can you expect? Me, a 66-year-old woman, I, I'm the other side of the line. So, you know, it's that's... not just age, though. They, they, they hide behind these um, pre-existing conditions. Yeah. Well, you were ill anyway. Yeah. Asthma, well, eczema. Yeah. I mean, ridiculous. Twitchy eyelid, twitchy eyelid, well-known <laughs> susceptibility to COVID. <laughs> well, you know, if you've got a fractured eyelash... You know, what do you expect? You know, of course, you know, I mean, I knew a guy, you know, he died and he just had very, very bad eyelashes. You know, what do you expect? You know, I mean, if you'd dealt with it, you know, if you'd brushed them every now and then, you know, you'd have survived. But, you know, what do you expect? Anyway, yeah. But it is, it's, it's putting more value on one person's life than another person's life. And that has been throughout the whole pandemic. You start seeing this stuff circulating about the idea that some people are some, somehow... It was, you know, surplus to requirements. And, of course, that's me, you, and, and, and it's me and you two. We're surplus to requirements because we got it. You go, what? Because yeah, we're somehow theory, weaker. Well, and this theory of herd immunity, which is completely bogus anyway, it's bad, it's lousy biology, and government scientists were going into TV studios mid-March and saying herd immunity is the way. And we had journalists saying... You know, herd immunity is crucial to beating the coronavirus. We had others saying, well, if you look at it from a purely economic point of view, you might find that culling the elderly might be mildly beneficial. I quote a true journalist in a, in a broad, broadsheet newspaper. So from us going through long COVID and you say, oh, yeah, you, you know, you're bitter or you're mean or you're depressed or any of these things. Well, it's not separable from that environment in which we were being gaslighted, gaslit. It's just absurd the way in which this kind of view of separating off into the worthy and unworthy is, is, is that it could, ha could have happened so quickly and have reached such high levels in society. That's, that's what I find now really frightening.
if you look at the difference between long COVID and ME and the way that long COVID is actually getting support, it's because of the empathy that so many frontline workers, doctors, nurses, surgeons, because they were all getting COVID, a lot of them have ended up with long COVID and are therefore pushing research, seeing patients, recognising patients. You would have thought Boris Johnson, having gone through COVID and half his cabinet, that there would have been some empathy there. But there wasn't. No. But then if you look at what Johnson was saying in February 2020 in his Greenwich speech, which is like slightly strangled prose, but if you read it carefully, he said that he was against market segregation to deal with the coronavirus. What did he mean by that? What he meant was he was against a public health policy. That's I'm translating. So market segregation, he meant government intervention as a way of dealing with the coronavirus. Now, that's a deep philosophy. That was It's a resistance and a disinclination and a hostility towards what certain people in government would think of as kind of covert socialism, the NHS. So that though, though they've always sort of mouthed in front of us that they support the NHS, free on the point of delivery, all this stuff, it obviously sticks in their craw because they're fundamental believers that the market can solve everything. And so Johnson sat down rationally using all his life's experience and said that we will beat the coronavirus with the market. Don't you start telling me, WHO, or you horrible Labour people opposite me, that it's the NHS in its localities is best placed to fight this virus. So when you say, well, you know, you've had COVID, you ought to be able to have some empathy. Well, put a fine point on it, but the market is not about empathy, is it? The market is about devil take the hindmost and and um, the rat race and may the, the fittest win in the market. That's, that's what the market philosophy is, that devil take the hindmost, survival of the fittest, which in itself, by the way, is a mistranslation, misunderstanding of what, of what Darwin meant. But anyway, um, and so with that idea in mind, in a way, it doesn't surprise me that the government isn't oozing empathy and isn't saying we have a severe social problem. If there are young, fit women like you a year after this illness and the, you are in various ways incapacitated, you're trying not to make it define yourselves, but you're coming to grips with it. Okay, Rosen's an old geezer, we can forget about him. But, you know, if there's people like you in the forefront, and they aren't expressing empathy, then there's something else going on. With uh, a large amount of the workforce being debilitated by long COVID, you would have thought that that might actually make them take an interest because it is going to have a massive economic impact on people individually, which is going to require state reliance, but also on the economy of the country. They are going to have to somehow start supporting people. Are they not? You would have thought so. But again, just remember that phrase. He was against market segregation. So the fundamental reflex of the government is not to intervene. I mean, they do, you know, and that's a whole other ballgame is, you know, what they do and what they say are quite often different things. But their first emotional and uh, philosophical reflex is to not intervene and say, well, it's all right. The market will work it out. I mean, in your jobs will say, well, if you can't come in, they'll find someone else. You, you've got this training, that training. Well, you know, so be it. Uh, they can put an advert in the newsagent's window and say, journalist required. Um, 
you know, uh, pop in and, and do a bit of journalism. So, <laughs> you know, they, they're... Pretty much how it goes. <laughs> in response to long COVID, they're probably, their first reflex is the market will solve it. And the NHS will do some elastoplast, will do some Band-Aid on it, and sort of maybe patch a few people up here and there. They put two million quid or whatever it is into into clinics and hopefully, you know, push people back into work. If they have to leave an hour early or whatever, then they work that out with their boss. The idea that the market's going to fix this is ridiculous because a highly skilled professional who took years and years of training is now incapacitated because of long COVID. To ignore us, it's not going to work. And and also all the stresses and strains in th- something like long COVID are pushed onto families. So that we yeah. know, you, you'll know this, I'm sure better than me, but, you know, I felt this very acutely when I came home that suddenly I was now not capable of doing things like take the rubbish out. I can now uh, take the rubbish out or go shopping, things that I tr- did before. And, of course, who who was going to do that? Well, answer Emma. And I suddenly found myself doing the kind of, you know, that sort of concertina thing of jobs in a house as to, you know, which bit of the concertina is who doing what, you know. And so that bit stretches and that bit squeezes up. And suddenly I realised that if I didn't get myself a bit more capable, um, you know, Emma would be doing absolutely everything. So the burden falls on the people around us. And that's very, very difficult. Very, very difficult. It's incredibly difficult if you are someone who has really had the independence. Some days I can't get up and take my kids to school. And that I just find soul destroying because one, I'm having to ask my husband to actually do something that I have always done. But two, I'm not physically capable of looking after my own children sometimes. Can I ask you this? When you did that thing, you said, I can't get up. Have have you experimented with, as it were, what happens if I really push against this and try and do it? The way I saw it was, and still do, is hitting the wall like marathon runners. You know, when you see marathon runners at 20 miles suddenly going all wobbly, and they describe that as hitting the wall. Yeah. So when, it, when it's happened to me, I think I'm hitting the wall now. Now, have you experimented with trying to go through it and see get to the other side? And if so, are you then much worse or did it have any success? If I've got a full-on migraine with light sensitivity and noise sensitivity, I can't, I can't do anything. I can't push through it. If it's a very, very heavy headache with exhaustion and I'm here by myself and my husband's away and I have to do it, I, I push and push and push through those days. And I will generally find when my husband gets back that I will end up in bed for three days, unable to get out of bed for three days. So yes, pushing through it definitely worsens the consequences in the long run. Yeah. So that's very important to keep a diary of that. Yeah. And to see whether it changes. Was that your experience as well? Yeah, because I, I obviously had to learn how to walk and then pushing the walks further and further. And some days I'd say, I really can't face doing this. And I, I thought, well, listen to that. Don't do it. And there have been occasions when I have actually pushed through it. I'm now finding that if I push through it, I'm usually okay and that okay. I feel better about it. But saying that, you see, yesterday I, I just keeled over. But this is 18 months and also I don't think I got the full-on muscular headachey stuff that you guys have had. It's been slightly more specific and also affected by the ICU. 
But um, if you keep a diary of that pushing through thing, you'll find out whether it's plateaued and it's a semi-permanent state or whether you can, you do, can it do it a little bit or whatever. And that, that I think is pretty important. Yeah, great advice. I mean, it sounds a bit like because you were so bedbound and had to actually recondition yourself, it's slightly different to what we suffer from, whereas I can be sitting down here now talking to you and my heart rate's at 50, 55, and I'll stand up and it'll go to 100. That's because of the autonomic or micro injuries that my body's yes. dealing with. And that's something I can't control through reconditioning. I forgot to tell you, I have a yo-yoing heart pressure thing as well. Ah. Um, I forgot to tell you that. But sometimes of an evening, I know when the sort of low blood pressure hits. It's quite funny if I, I sometimes put my feet up. So suddenly it's sort of like, whoosh, my hand's gone cold. And um, I sometimes get up and go up and downstairs if I can be bothered. Or it's much easier just to get under a blanket. But um, so, But I know that what's happened is that it's it's gone down and that's a blood pressure thing is it right yes that's that's right but of course you see now that we know that covid can attack nerves and obviously the heart is very well served with nerves then you know something might be going on there but all this needs to be discovered and and worked out and certainly for you to monitor your blood pressures it would be in tremendously informative uh, so that if you have a sense that your blood pressure is low if you've got a a pressure thing at home to do that and just to log it even if you did it at the same time every day um though usually of course it's not the di- the moment in the day that's affected it's what you've been doing around it you know but yes that's very interesting you said that so you said your pulse goes down to 55 my resting heart rate's really quite good but i yes. have this very typical long covid symptom of tachycardia so uh, my heart rate will go up considerably when i stand up Yes. If I go up the stairs, it's like I'm running. So my heart rate will go to 150. Wow. And we don't believe that that is just from deconditioning. No, we no. were both quite fit and healthy before. And you get breathless and that's the symptom. Yeah. So that's the breathlessness. Have you got a blood pressure thing at home? No, it's something Noreen and I have been speaking about quite yeah. a lot this week. So I think it's something that we might investigate with the doctor. Yeah, because you can really put some figures on it and see, you know, so if you, you can feel it beating in your ears or what, however you can yeah, feel it. Yeah, I, I can really feel it whenever I put my headphones on as well. So it'd be quite mm. interesting to see. So obviously there's the pulse thing, which, you know, all fitness coaches do anyway, so you can take your pulses. I have my pulse and oximeter right here. Oh, my goodness me. There you <laughs> I go. Use, I use my watch. Oh, I'm not wearing it. <laughs> But I literally started using that uh, three days ago because I was concerned about my heart and whether there was something that I hadn't actually looked at because I get so dizzy. That's pressure. It's such an interesting disease because I've seen all kinds of fancy doctors, even at the Cleveland Clinic in the US, where they've tested my heart and my heart is actually sound. It's the nerves that have been affected. Yeah. That's because the nerves are fed by the capillaries, you see, and yeah. the capillaries got damaged. And so that's that. And when you look at it like that, it kind of makes more sense that it's a whole body and that we've all got these weird, different symptoms. Yeah. And it's where it got into, you see. So it got into my brain and killed the optic and auditory nerves, you see. So that's why the eyes are. On the, le- on the left side. That's just wherever the, it was circulating at that moment. I mean, it's biophysics, you know, it's how 
blood clots and things go round the tubes. We're just bits of plumbing after all. So that's the bit of the you know, the radiators. You know, think of your central heating. That's the when one you know when a radiator goes out, and you go, well, why that radiator and not the others? Well, it's because some bit of clog got in that radiator. So it's like that really. It's just got to that bit on the left side and then knocked out the cranial two of the cranial nerves. So have you had other neurological? impact obviously you're someone who's mentally and verbally incredibly dexterous normally did you notice a difference in your verbal dexterity in your speed of thinking yeah I mean the first six months there were all sorts of problems the the one problem was speech because I had tracheostomy for 40 days um so that was one thing but then the brain fog thing well that was quite worrying because I found that I whereas I could in the past handle two or three inputs at any given moment. Now I couldn't. And it was partly the eye and the ear, but also it was actually mentally that there were things where if too much came in at the same point, I couldn't quite handle it. Um, And so luckily, uh, the radio that I do is usually one-on-one interviews. But if there had been three, if I'd had three interviewees, I think I'd have really struggled. Are we scrambling your brain today? With no, it's fine. No, no, it's all right. It's good. I can cope. But it's <laughs> later now. So, But at the time, when, say the first three, four, five months, also I was having a lot of memory loss. Really? Oh, yeah. That was, that was quite bad, first few months. Emma would say something one day and then say it again the next day. Uh, well, or say something that indicated that I hadn't remembered from the day before. And so there was quite a lot of short-term memory loss going on. And then I genuinely had a very funny syndrome, which I call famous Hollywood star forgetting syndrome. So whereas I would remember the names of Arsenal footballers or stuff, you know, names of things that I was writing about, I had an absolute blank on major Hollywood stars. So I can remember forgetting, (laughs) if I can put it that way, Tom Cruise, Meryl Streep and George Clooney. I remember sitting there going, that bloke, he's got a beard now. He used to be in that thing called ER. And he, and he, he was in the Nespresso ad going, Nespresso, what else? You know, <laughs> yeah, it's him. No, no, the bloke in Mission Impossible, that guy, what's he called? Now, he runs, all the movies he's in, he runs about. He runs about, that's right. And he's always the good guy, isn't he? He's never bad. And that woman, she's such a good actor. You know, Sophie's Choice, Sophie's Choice. Oh, yeah, yeah, incredible. You know, she could do voices, characters. She, you know, she could be Mrs. Thatcher. She's got, what's her name? major Hollywood star forgetting syndrome and I would sit here right where I'm sitting now and I vowed not to look it up and I would go through the movies and sort of think right he was in that movie who was a and sometimes I did get it but there was certainly a long period and and it does still just happen a bit so it is quite strange it's so specific I sort of almost feel as if there's some little corner of my brain that was specially allotted where George Clooney, Tom Cruise and Meryl Streep sit <laughs> and that got knocked out with the blood clot. The blood clot went wandering around and went, bing, got you, Hollywood stars, bing. I'm glad it went there rather than to family members or Yes, friends. exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> My brain has blacked out uh, fast food chains. Oh, right. That's a good thing. I know. I can't remember the name. I'll be like, let's go to that place, you know, the one that does chicken. Yes. Or, we'll go to a burger place, not McDonald's, but the other one. You the know, other the one, one that I can't remember the name of. And I had to look it up the other day yeah. for Shake Shack. I couldn't find it. That's it. Brain. Total long COVID. Yeah, that's right. That is but exactly I'm glad it. that it's not things that are really going to be detrimental to your life, those particular things. I, I imagine there are people who actually have them for 
things that are very, very life affecting. But I think mm, the fast I food think... chains and Hollywood actors is, I think you're both really lucky to have only lost those. <laughs> <laughs> I think the GP that I mentioned earlier, I think she was, you know, clearly, you know, she's a GP. She's trying to function every day as a GP, writing reports. And things that were just taking, you know, as I say, just a short time were now taking a three days. So it had totally affected. Can you uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, your decision to write a book about your experience and tell us a little bit about the book? I respond to things that happen to me or that I see or hear or read about. If it touches me in any way whatsoever, my first reflex is to write something. And it suits me. It suits me as a sort of self-confessional uh, self-observational thing or observing things around me. So I started doing that because here's this great trauma that's happened to me. They're telling me I nearly died. They're telling me I was unconscious. Uh, I'm trying to come to terms with the fact that Emma sat here for 40 days, not knowing whether I'd live or die. I'm thinking of my kids. I have young kids as well as much older ones. And I'm kind of thinking, this is tumultuous. And I'm, I must pin that moment down and that moment down and think about what do I know about death and thinking of my parents, thinking of my son, and I started scribbling that down. And then I had a collection and then I sent them off to my agent, as I tend to, and he said he was very moved by them. He sent them off and suddenly there were people saying, this is really interesting. And then I said, you know, the nurses, when I was in intensive care, um, they wrote a, a patient diary and they wrote me letters every day. So it forms a kind of diary of my life as I don't know it. You know, they're telling me they were standing around my bed singing me happy birthday to this kind of unconscious slug lying in the bed. And uh, and it's very moving. So I said, we could have bits of that. And they said, yeah, that's great. And then Emma said, well, then they're also my bulletins to the family. You know, Mick didn't get up today, that sort of thing, you know. And um, so they said, oh, yes, that's really interesting. And then it sort of evolved into a book. I'm just interested to know how soon you were able or whether that was part of your process of finding acceptance, get, getting better? Yeah, it's, it's a combo. it is sorting it out. It's, it is a way of sorting out what's going on. Um, and then if people are then interested in it, then that's very restorative as well. Because, you know, one of the functions of literature is to bring the news from there to here, whatever it is, you know, people in a coal mine or um, people wandering over and finding some daffodils. You know, that's that's one of the functions of literature is to bring the news from one place to another and to make unfamiliar things familiar or vice versa, to finding very familiar things and making them somehow unfamiliar. So literature aims and can do these things. And so, you know, I had this experience, didn't happen to many people, but to some. And uh, so I did feel at some points, well, I'll, I'll write these pieces about trying to recover or being muddled or uh, what I called alternate day syndrome, you know, being active one day and sleeping the next. And so I sort of jotted these things down and um, it's restorative to do it. And then I think restorative when people say, oh, that was, God, when you saw what you said there about, oh, it might have been that poem I wrote about going to the land of the dead. You know, I sort of feel quite strange about this moment of the coma that was I really alive? Well, I was, but how can you be not conscious? What does that mean? In, in human existence, what does that mean? So I think it, 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 big yeses to everything you were saying there, yeah. It's about processing it. Yes, very much so. It, it, it is likely to be helpful for people who have been through similar experiences or who are trying to process this trauma to mm. to read 
like you hearing other people's stories has provided you with some kind of catharsis. People reading your writing about it, I imagine, can only be helpful. Yeah, that's, again, one of the purposes of literature, isn't it? Why do we read? To find the human in the book or the poem or whatever it is, or the play, the film, and find where and how we connect with it. And we do this, we watch a film or read a poem, something. If I was like that, how would I have reacted? I have a, another book coming out in November for children called Sticky McStick Stick. Oh, fantastic. That is a brilliant name. Well, that's my stick that taught, taught me how to walk. That's like Boaty McBoatface. It's exactly. It was a lift. <laughs> you know, I wasn't that imaginative. I was lying in bed, you know, and they would come in the mornings and say, get up, grab the stick. So I, uh, Sticky McStick Stick. In fact, I think it was my one of my first tweets after I disappeared off Twitter for three months. And I said, you know, st- sticky, I'm going to stick it with stick stick. And I think he got something like 40,000 likes or something crazy because Rosen is back, you know. Someone called it the resurrection of the year, um, which, you know, <laughs> Jewish person I was very proud of. And um, so, yeah, so, uh, yes, so Sticky McStick stick stick is coming out in... Uh, oh, fantastic. Well, we get, we'll be sure to get that for our children. Please do. It's Tony Ross has done the pictures. So, oh, uh, amazing. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. But it's sort of the recovery bit from many different kinds of love made into a children's book. Oh, oh sort wonderful. Of, sort of, anyway, I've paraphrased, yeah. We've taken a lot of your time. A lot of your brain capacity for the Yeah, day. well, probably for a week, actually. So, yeah, you, you know how it goes. <laughs> you know, I'm going to lie down in a darkened room now. Well, that was really nice to chat to Michael I might just go and join him in his darkened room because I'm feeling so crap today. Interesting. Let's see. I mean, not with him. <laughs> I'm sure he might, he might. That might be a bit of a shock. In my own darkened room. All of these personal stories that we do, all of these people, I do. I always gain a huge amount from that communality, from that discussion of how other people have been affected yeah. but I also find sort of gratitude from being thankful that I don't have x y and z however rubbish my situation might be I don't have x y and z yes and I mean he said that himself that he, he gains a lot of comfort from hearing other people's stories and I think that's what we're just trying to do here is to share as many stories and as much information as possible to give comfort and we loved hearing Michael's story, but we would also really like to hear from listeners. We'd love to hear your stories, even if that's leaving a comment on our website or a message to us on Twitter. We'd really love to get your input, hear your stories and find out what you're finding useful and what is interesting to you. Do leave comments. Some people, that's the easiest way just to kind of share a bit of their story. Yeah. And it's really nice to read. We try and respond to everybody who, who writes to us. Join us next week as we hear others' experiences of long COVID. Share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. And if you found this interesting, please do subscribe.